Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 2. After Hours with James Como. Welcome everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season we've been eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to his nephew, a demon named Wormwood. Each week we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However... Today is a Thursday and is therefore an after-hours episode where I'm interviewing a guest. Now, since we are beginning a new season, we know we're probably going to be attracting new listeners who may not know too many details about the life and work of C.S. Lewis. They may just think of him as that children's author. Well, to this end, today we're very pleased to have on the show James Como. Professor James Como holds a PhD in Language, Literature and Rhetoric from Columbia University, and is Professor Emeritus of Rhetoric and Public Communication at New York College. He was a founding member of the New York C.S. Lewis Society in 1969, and has written four books about C.S. Lewis, which include Remembering C.S. Lewis, Why I Believe in Narnia, Branches to Heaven, and the book which we'll be talking about today, C.S. Lewis, A Very Short Introduction, or VSI, for short, for even shorter. (laughs) These books, along with his many journal articles on Lewis and on air commentary for uh, five biographical documentaries, they've established Professor Como as one of the most highly regarded Lewis scholars in the world, and we're very honored to welcome him here today. So, Professor Como, welcome to Pints with Jack. I'm so happy to be with you and your listeners. So, listeners, a few years ago when we started the podcast, I started coming across Professor Como's name occasionally, but our paths crossed about a year ago because I watched a documentary, it was called Narnia's Lost Poet, where A.N. Wilson made the claim that Lewis failed his driving test, I think 16 or 17 times, it was something ridiculous. And the claim seemed to me to be just too far-fetched. So I asked around on Facebook if anyone knew of any evidence to actually support this claim. And someone, I think it actually may have been Andrew Lazo, he suggested that I reach out to Professor Como and see if he knew anything about it. And we then had a delightful email exchange. And then a little while ago, I saw that he had just released a book. So I went to my Google Drive, made a note, and made certain that we got him on in this season. But before we get stuck into the interview, we need to do the quote of the week. And since Professor Como wrote a very short introduction uh, to C.S. Lewis, I thought this quotation from Lewis's essay, Before We Can Communicate, would be appropriate. In the very process of eliminating from your matter all that is technical, learned, or elusive, you'll discover, perhaps for the first time, the true value of learned language. Namely, brevity. And our drink of the week is VAT69. And we're going to be toasting uh, one of our Gold Level supporters on Patreon. Because we toast one of those each week. Uh, Professor Como, do you have a drink? I think my dear wife gave me some uh, vermouth, as a matter of fact. With ice. Excellent choice. I beg your pardon. Aperol Spritz. Well, today we're toasting Sam, so if you'll please raise your glass. I certainly will. Sam, may neighbours respect you, trouble neglect you, the angels protect you, and heaven accept you. Cheers. Amen, Sam. Thank you. Mm, Lovely. So, to kick things off, Professor Como, can you tell us when you were first introduced to Lewis? Because it wasn't the usual path of Narnia or apologetics, was it? No, it was not. Um... I was raised and remain a cradle, I was cradle Catholic, I remain a practicing Catholic. Had never heard of C.S. Lewis, had never heard of G.K. Chesterton. And then, as a reader of National Review, William Buckley's magazine back in the 60s, I came across an article called The Rebirth of Christ by Jeffrey Hart. Now, at this point, I'm an undergraduate, and... Um, feel besieged on all sides by the secularism, secularism of the university, New York City. And there, in the middle of the academy, for goodness sakes, was this man who would take on all comers, 
to beat them down to their bones and defend a full-throated Christianity. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. At that time, I was taking a course on literary criticism and had been told by Professor Hart that Lewis wrote a book called An Experiment in Criticism. And that was my first book by C.S. Lewis. And that was all it took. It was, it, it was a remarkable book. You need not be a literary person, let alone a theorist, to enjoy this book. It really teaches you how to read, how to understand writing. And it has a generosity of spirit and a humility that just bowled me over because these were not characteristics of academics or of literary critics. Generosity of spirit <laughs> and humility were not you know, widespread, but in Lewis they were. And I, I remember that. And I wrote, uh, I read uh, The Great Divorce was my second book. I had no idea what that book was about. I assumed it was about divorce. <laughs> and, well, I mean, this was, this was my strong group. I, I love fantasy. I've been reading fantasy and fairy tales from a very young age. And the idea of a bus trip to heaven, where the world is so much more solid than the world we occupy, was just astonishing to me. And then to have this sense of proportion of the sins that the passengers brought with them and how differently they were viewed in heaven and how differently they were viewed in heaven it was just astonishing. And I realized, and ever since it's been the case, that Lewis is a master of many things, but one of the things that he commands is perspective. He has an understanding of perspective that I have found in, in no one else. So those were the two. And then, and then of course, it was just my soon-to-be wife got me books. Books by Lewis were not easy to get at that time. Now, this is back in the mid-60s, late 60s. And um, she, she bought me uh, books by Lewis. And I read and read and read, but not the Chronicles. It wasn't until I was writing a master's thesis on Lewis, and I got very sick. I, I, I had a terrible cold, a terrible cold. And I decided to read the Chronicles then. But I wanted the cold to last, you see. <laughs> and so I, I lay near an open window just to make sure I didn't get well too quickly. <laughs> and I finished the seven books in the five days, and my world was changed. It was like turning a corner and and seeing, you know, awe is, is exactly the right word. I, I was just uh, astonished. I was taken out of myself, completely out of myself. And um, it's, it's never been the same. You know, I, like many people, I've reread them many, many times. But then I went on to read everything, by, and I mean everything, everything I could get my hands on. And more, and thanks to Walter Hooper, more and more came out. Um, collections of essays, as people know, his letters, which are treasures, and um, short, short essays, which are astonishing in their brevity, <laughs> apropos the quote that you read. So, uh, sermons. And, and then I was bouncing along on a subway train, a New York City subway train, reading Lewis. And I peered up over the book. And I saw that across the aisle, there was someone else bouncing along, reading a book by Lewis. And she looked up, and I looked up, and we looked at each other. We dropped our books, and we smiled. And I said, I lip-synced. I said, you too? She said, mm -hmm, yes. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I thought I was the only one. And then, and then um, anticipating another question you have, there was a letter in National Review asking for those who are interested in speaking about C.S. Lewis to write a letter to Henry Noel. And we did, and that was the beginning of the New York C.S. Lewis Society in 1969. And, and, and thereafter, it's been nonstop. I mean, I just, you know, have read and reread. I have other favorite authors that I love and return to uh, devotedly. Um, but Lewis is, I, as much as I've been enriched by others, no other is my earthly master. It's Lewis. He is my great knock, and... Uh, many other things that I'm sure we'll get into as time goes by. So I love him dearly. I pray for his soul, his brother's soul. And um, that was the beginning of things. 
Well, you mentioned the New York C.S. Lewis Society, and I always heard your name referenced in relation to that. So you said you're part of its founding in 1969. What does the society actually do? Well, we meet the second Friday of every month, except in August or if the Friday falls on Good Friday. And um, there'll be a different person who was nominally the chair of the society. We'll start with a quotation from Lewis. People will say their names. If you're a first-time member, um, we ask you to say either your first or favorite book. Sometimes I make believe I'm a first-time member, because I can say, and my favorite book is The Great Divorce. <laughs> so it's become a sort of running joke at the society. You know. um, and then, the, and then the person who is the chair will deliver herself or himself of, of a discussion, maybe read a paper, maybe discuss a work by Lewis, which we will all have known ahead of time. Uh, a bulletin is published once every two months, and it's not, it's not a learned journal, nor is it a newsy type thing, but rather includes articles by people who may not have written much on Lewis, uh, we have one series called The Lewis Bookshelf, where a man named Nelson will talk about a book in Lewis's library and what it might have meant to Lewis. Two months ago, two bulletins ago, there was an article by Charles Beach, one of our longtime members, discussing Lewis's poetry. And all due respect to Don King, who has written the book on Lewis's poetry. This paper takes Lewis's poetry apart in ways which I had never realized before. And it's magnificent. It's, it's interpretive, it's critical. It's not scholarly in the, in the sense of introducing all kinds of theories. And then just in this week, we have an article by a man named David Calvis, C.S. Lewis as a vehicle for the liberal arts. A mathematician steals into Narnia. <laughs> and it's wonderful, because basically, he talks about his undergraduates, and it's C.S. Lewis applied. So we'll have meetings, discussions after the meeting, refreshments after the discussions, and then the bulletin. And um, we all enjoy ourselves. We have some members who have been attending for decades. You know, we just had our 50th anniversary. And others who are uh, new members. Every month we have a handful of brand new members. We've had, over the years, thousands of members. We're still, I think, the largest of the societies, first and the largest. And uh, we've had members in the Vatican, behind the Iron Curtain, in Africa, in the Far East. And um, word has gotten out, you know. And of course, I'm very happy to say, we've been a model for other societies. I know uh, Paul Ford had to introduce me at a function by the C.S. Lewis Foundation. And we had never met. But he reminded people that we had corresponded because when he wanted to start the California C.S. Lewis Society, he asked us for advice. And he said they probably would have begun, but not as quickly or as easily had it not been for the New York C.S. Lewis Society. Very, very satisfying. I also think one last point. There was a time, as you probably know, when Lewis's sales and popularity went into a trough in, in the, shortly after his death and then in the early and mid-70s, and um, people were wondering what will happen with Lewis. And Walter Hooper, who by then was a friend of ours, came to New York, and he invited me to visit some publishers with him to tell the publishers how interested people were in C.S. Lewis, that there is this society, there will be more societies, and so on. And sure enough, more books started to come out. So I think we had a little bit of a, an influence on publishers knowing, you know, there, there are people out there who want to read this book. I, I heard one anecdote about Screwtape, because we'll be doing that this year. Very interesting anecdote. Macmillan wanted to drop it from its backlist because so few copies were sold every year. And a secretary who had been with Macmillan for about 30 years said, you'd better think twice, because even though it doesn't sell much every year, it's been selling this much for 30 years <laughs> and will likely keep selling. So they kept it, they kept it on their backlist. So that's, that's what we do, and those are some of the <laughs> ancient histories. 
Well, then let's change gears a little bit, because uh, since we will probably be having new listeners since we're starting a new season and we're doing a bit of an advertising push, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of Lewis's life and work, uh, because you're the expert in very short introductions. I have complete confidence in you. Um, so how about we divide <laughs> his life into three, his early life, his life after the war, and his, his latter, the latter part of his life, the, the later years. I'll keep it real short. By C.S. Lewis, a very short introduction. <laughs> you need to know because it is, you know, as you as you know, it is very short. They have a word limit, and they, they, they're not nice about it when you start to go over the limit. Uh, Lewis, um, an Irishman, always an Irishman, always wanted to be known as an Irishman, Northern Irishman, Protestant. Uh, I dispute the claim that his claim that he was from a nominal Christian home. I was from a nominal Christian mm. home. They said grace. They prayed. They went to worship regularly. There were, there were cler prominent clergymen in his genealogy. It was not nominally Christian. Um, his mother died when he was very young. Terrible, terrible blow, which having lost my own mother when I was the same age as Lewis, I appreciate for being the blow it was. It has a fuse on it. You know? um, his father was a garrulous, intrusive man did his best, was probably an alcoholic. His best friend was his brother. He wrote stories and was first moved at a very young age by the phenomenon which he attributes his conversion to called joy, with the German word Zehnsucht. So that's the early life. He becomes an atheist, he says, and he was to a degree, but there was also a deeper part of him which was never an atheist. If you read uh, Spirits in Bondage, you'll read some very, very religious poetry, which could not have been written by an atheist. He sounds just very angry at God, and you can't be angry at a God that you don't think exists. Yes, exactly. He was, he was angry at many people. Uh, goes to war, is wounded, takes prisoners, which his sergeant dealt with as something of a joke, because the Germans threw down their guns and rushed to him with their hands up to surrender, because they were being chased by the French. And the Germans did not want to be captured by the French. And the sergeant said, you know, Lewis, you at least could have pulled your, your revolver. <laughs> Lewis comes in, dozens and dozens of these Germans. And he's an atheist. He, he hooks up with Mrs. Moore, the friend of a fallen comrade. And um, it's the lowest moral point of his life. He's lying to his father. They, they set up a household. Mrs. Moore is not divorced. Her husband lives abroad. She's not divorced. They begin to have some kind of a love affair. They become sexually intimate. So he's a liar. He's an adulterer. He's so poor that he's afraid people can see through his pants because they're transparent now from having been hired so frequently. Can only afford one razor blade. Keeps a diary, which is an interesting diary because he would read it to Mrs. Moore every night. And that's very telling because things he tells us in his autobiography later are not recorded in the diary, uh, but starts to read the right books, like Chesterton and MacDonald and so on, who we had read earlier, and begins to become a Christian. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, a, a believer, a theist. Then becomes a Christian and gets uh, a triple first at Oxford. He does uh, three different courses in three years, which is unheard of, he's, he's brilliant. Fortunately, he did not have to pass the algebra test because as an Irishman who had volunteered for service, he was exempt from the test. Otherwise, he never would have gotten into Oxford. But that is kind of hilarious. He was so scared of mathematics, he would prefer to go and fight in a war rather than do it. Yeah. What makes it even more hilarious is that his mother was a university-trained mathematician. Mm. I mean, it's just the ironies pile up. Well, he becomes a tutor, makes great friends, Barfield, Tolkien, and so on, and um, eventually writes Pilgrim's Regress, his first Christian non-poetic non work. And some reviewers take it to be a Catholic book. Uh, it's published by Sheed and Ward, which is a very prominent Catholic publishing house. Lewis could never have become a Catholic. I've argued that elsewhere and becomes two things at once, a very famous apologist, 
because at the end of the decade comes the problem of pain with, with sermons in between, like the weight of glory, which is really the hinge, the hinge of Lewis's work. Because his, his apologetic project is about hope above everything else, and that sermon is about nothing but hope, in my view. And, but at the same time becomes this commanding scholar. He comes out with the allegory of love that wins prizes. Um, he's writing all kinds of scholarly articles. And then in World War II, his brother is back from the war. They move in together with Mrs. He has a house with Mrs. Moore, moves in. Mrs. Moore's daughter moves out, would get married eventually, was very devoted to Jack and Warney. And um, between the years of 1939 and 1948, I would say, it's as though there were five different Lewises. It's impossible for one human being to have written this much of this variety at that level is, is just astonishing. As he was taking walking tours with his friends, as he was teaching and lecturing, by the way, he became, by some accounts, and I've heard from people who heard him lecture, the best lecturer in Oxford at the time. I mean, people packed the rooms to the radio. Talking, talking was known to lecture to one person. <laughs> Lewis filled the room. And of course, this great conversationalist. And did I mention, by the way, that he's writing poetry all along, which was his first ambition to be a poet, and his correspondence increases to about 2,000 letters a week? How, how do you do that? I, I, I don't know. He wasn't taking amphetamines as far as he knows. But he was smoking a lot, by all accounts. He was smoking a lot, and he could drink. You know, as, as Bob Jones said, that man does smoke and he does drink, but I believe he's a Christian. <laughs> Um, and then he enters, I, I, there are two things about Lewis which I think scholars should pay more attention to. One is that dreadful period in the 20s at his lowest moral point. Because it's important, I think, for people to know what Lewis converted from. The second is what I think of as a dark night of the soul, which he confessed, confessed in Latin to his Italian friend, Father Calabria. Saint Calabria. Yeah, yeah, Saint, Saint Giovanni Calabria, in which he says that he, he, he thinks he'll never write another word. And you know, that's a good thing, because lately I've been tempted to pride by the letters and reviews that I've been receiving, and it's a dreadful thing. And if I can be saved from that by having nothing else to say, then I pray God. He wrote a poem that wasn't published during his lifetime. Save me from my trumpery ere I die. And then Mrs. Moore goes into a hospital. She loses her mind. She goes into a hospital and she dies. And he starts to recover. And I find it very interesting that Lewis wrote an essay on forgiveness in the mid-40s, not published during his lifetime. Mid-40s now. And it's formulaic to be forgiven, confess your sins, be sorry for your sins, be penitential about your sins, promise not to repeat your sins. I mean, you know, it's what any... Christian knows about forgiveness, but it's not until Mrs. Moore dies and he writes Father Calabria that he says, for the first time, I feel my sins are forgiven me. And then, of course, we get to the other stage. Narnia comes out and Joy Davidman arrives, Joy Davidman Gresham, and we enter into the penultimate stage of Lewis's life. Very productive stage. And I'm very ambivalent about Joy. I, I love Abigail Santa Maria's book called Joy, which is a biography of Joy Davidman. I recommend it to people. And um, then we get the coda, the post-Joy. Joy dies in 1960, I think. Lewis lives another three years and continues to be productive at Cambridge because in the 50s he moved to Cambridge. And he finally dies. His brother Warren hears the thump. And, um, and that's the end of Lewis's life story. Of course, his, his influence lives on and on and on. I, I, haven't, mentioned, I haven't mentioned the works. I, uh, to, to a new reader of Lewis, do you mind if I, if I... Go for it. A new reader of Lewis, I, I'm often asked, what book do you recommend? And I cannot answer that question because I don't know the person. I do know, I do know, I really do, I'm confident of this. There is a Lewis for everyone at some point. 
such is the range of his work. It's, it's astonishing. I, I think of Lewis as a kind of polyphonic piece of music, almost a symphonic piece of music with melody, harmonies, a baseline of imagination, all the sections of the orchestra playing. And you, you know, you read one work, you don't know Lewis. You read a second work, oh, that's Lewis. <laughs> no. Read a third work. Oh, so you put them all together and you have this astonishing achievement, which, which is the whole, not just Narnia now, that's important, the whole Lewis, which you will go back to again and again and again. One Lewis I will recommend, and that is the mystic Lewis. Now, I came late to that idea, Amant, of the mystic Lewis, consciously. But subconsciously, Perilandra had already introduced me to the mystic Lewis. Because the end of that book is as transcendent, it gets you right to the rim of the eschaton. <laughs> the end of that book. And then I came across... Um, David Downing's book, David Downing is, is a co-director now of Wade with his wife, Crystal, called Into the Region of Awe, another book I recommend, and it's just wonderful. Now, if you read that early on, you'll get it, but you won't get the whole Lewis until you keep reading Till We Have Faces, which is a very different, even devoted Lewis readers don't like Till We Have Faces. You know? Yes, you know why I think? Thematically, it's Lewis from beginning mm -hmm. to end, but the tone is not Lewis. You could, you could hardly find anything less like Terralandra than until we have faces. And the reason for that is the first person narrator, the Queen Oral, who tells her own story. I mean, she's such an unattractive human being. <laughs> in, many, in many ways and at many levels. In many ways, yes, yes. And, you know, you wouldn't want to have lunch with her because you just might not make it out. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's how bad she is. So that's what I would say to Lewis people entering Lewis. If, if you're interested in his life, by all means, read um, George Sayers' biography or McGrath's biography. Don't bother yet with secondary sources on C.S. Lewis. I have others I could recommend, but, but don't, don't bother with them. Read more Lewis and um, as much as you can, and then let some secondary sources come. For, for example, with Narnia. The, the best book on Narnia I know is Reading with the Heart by Peter Shakel. It's just a wonderful book. Um, story by story. There are others. I mean, I, I picked that one out because it impressed me so deeply. I'm not demeaning others by any means. Um, it, it's, just, it's just wonderful. But don't think you have to go to secondary sources for, for Lewis. I mean, you can resort to them. But, um, oh, except Pilgrim's Redress. Yeah, there you'll need a secondary <laughs> They need some help. <laughs> there, there, we, all, we all need some help. The, the other thing I often tell people who are starting to dig into Lewis is, don't worry if you start a book of his and you don't like it. It's fine. Put it down. Move on to the next one. I did not get through Surprised by Joy the first time I started trying to read it. I was utterly confused. It's like, where's Aslan? <laughs> it was one of the earlier books I read. I didn't get it. But once I had read about four other of his books, I then came back and was like, oh, okay, this is now starting to make sense. I understand what he's talking about when he's talking about Joy. I had the completely wrong idea. And this is a very different kind of biography than the one I was expecting to read. Right, right. Very, very good point. So don't be confused. Don't be dismayed. Go on to something else. Lewis will pull you back eventually. Uh, just before we move on, are there any misconceptions you think people particularly hold regarding Lewis? Well, he was a very complex man. Some people, I mean, this goes back decades, but some people who come fresh to Lewis think of him as a hail fellow well met with all these friends and drinking buddies and so on. But he was a very complex man with layers in his psychology and so on. There were parts of himself that he didn't know. So that's one thing I would tell people. Lewis, Lewis was not a simple, a simple guy. Um, I think this debate with Elizabeth Anscombe, mm -hmm. which compelled him to revise Chapter three of Miracles. I was going to ask you about that later in when we were talking about the book, but let, let's, let's talk about it now. So can you just set the scene? What was this issue with Elizabeth Anscombe and how is it reported and what's actually probably a little closer to the truth? It, it, it's, it's too long and complex a controversy, I think, to boil down too much. But Lewis read a paper on why naturalism is self-refuting. Naturalism is a theory that 
There's only matter. There's only atoms and molecules, and that's it. And Lewis's point is, if that's the case, then it also applies to your brain. And if it applies to your brain, then it applies to what you're saying now. And if it applies to what you're saying now, then why should I believe anything? Because there's all a bunch of atoms randomly colliding with each other in your brain. And this was chapter three of Miracles. Basically, his refutation of Hume, whom he read assiduously, refuting Hume's attack on miracles. Anscombe took him up on this point at a meeting of the Socratic Club, I believe, and pointed out that Lewis is confusing causation with the ground of belief. And she used rather technical language. And Lewis understood that he had been justifiably corrected. And it's one of those times, by the way, when using, sticking strictly to layman's language got him in trouble. It's where some technical language would have helped him. And it did, because he rewrote the chapter in three times longer in the revised in the revised edition. But it did not make him stop writing apologetics. You know, Lewis used hyperbole, you know, it's like a battlefield and cannons going off and so on and so forth. The one thing he didn't like is that if Anscombe criticized him, would now let her recommend a remedy, which which she didn't do. It turns out, by the way, that that um, Anscombe became an exceedingly prominent philosopher, was a devoted Catholic, and was in her life the leading expert on Ludwig, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, so she, she was no minor league ball player, Elizabeth Anscombe. But it did not have the, and, and Anscombe herself said, I, I don't know what the big deal is. You know, <laughs> we had an exchange, it happens all the time. It's not the first one for either one of us, nor the last. So let's just move on. That's that's what she thought. Um, so I think that's one thing that could be adjusted. I think the dark night of the soul could be adjusted. I think people like King and Charles Beach looking more at his poetry, and we're about to get a really good book on um, Dimer coming out with Jerry Root and a, and a co-author. I, I apologize to the man. I'm forgetting his name. Do you, do you happen to remember the I don't know it offhand. I knew, I knew Jerry Root's book was coming out soon yes, november yeah. i think I, i've been given a copy of that and they asked me to write something for it which i did happily and that's wonderful because it'll be coming out i i actually rate the poetry higher than most people but i do think it's an important book. so there's that um well, the influence the influence of lewis's mother's death when i wrote branches to heaven because my mother had died at about the same time same age that lewis was i was And uh, he was just about 10, I was nine, that kind of thing. So I researched the impact of early parental loss on the person. And um, it, it's a lot of research has been done, and it's astonishing. And in my book, Branches to Heaven, I, I point out some things about Lewis that are textbook examples of the influence of his mother's death, including certain kinds of dreams and, and so on. So I think that should be looked into more thoroughly, more, more carefully than has been the case. Uh, and also his life after Joy's death. Um, George Sayer points out that he was on the verge of proposing marriage to um, Ruth Pitter, the poet. And uh, he didn't do that because um, he was sick and he didn't want to, you know, bring this albatross around her neck. Uh, some people don't like to hear that. Douglas Gresham doesn't like to hear that. As a man like Gresham who's lost his own mother, I understand Douglas's response, but that's that's the case. You know, that there was a life after Joy. Are they able to say that because of letters that he wrote? I think I think George Sayer was able to say it because Lewis talked it over with him and Sayer put it in his book. Ah. Right? Um, so there was that. And... Uh, Well, I guess there are other things we could go into more deeply. I, we're learning more and more about Lewis. Um, Lewis's style and his rhetoric, that's, that's my interest. I think Lewis, above all, was a rhetorician. He was a persuader. And there's a very book, good book by a man named Tandy called The Rhetoric of Certitude, where he discusses C.S. Lewis's use of figures of speech. Now, this is in the weeds for most people. I mean, eyes glaze over when you talk about homo eo teleoton. <laughs> you know, but 
It's red meat to me. He <laughs> does a wonderful job with it. So, so Lewis's style is important. Years ago, this is a beef. I'll tell you a beef I have. The great late Chris Mitchell, whom I love dearly, the head, former head, the immediate past of head of the Wade Collection, talked about waves of Lewis scholarship. And indeed, they have come in waves because things that people know now easily weren't known back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Even Lewis books weren't out in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. So, so God bless scholars who assiduously go through this, this new stuff and find even newer stuff at the Wade Collection and so on. But you still have to do your homework. You still should read Chad Walsh's very first book on Lewis called Apostle to the Skeptics. You should read Cunningham's book on Lewis's rhetorical devices, which goes way back, I think, probably to the 60s. Um, Chad, uh, um, Roger Lancel and Green's little monograph on C.S. Lewis, because Green knew Lewis. He, he knew him so well. Right? Had some influence on Narnia. So this kind of literature review from the very early days should be a standard practice of scholars coming along, because they'll find that much of this holds up and adds terrific texture and insight into whatever, whatever they're working on. I'm done with my beef. That's the type of Well, let's move from your beef to your work. So your latest book, C.S. Lewis, A Very Short Introduction. Uh, and the funny thing about this book is I got it on pre-order, but I was in North Carolina at the time giving a talk on Lewis. And whenever I give a talk, I always have books and CDs and stuff to give away. Uh, and I think I must have left some of them back at home. So I had your book. So I gave away my pre-ordered copy before I even had a chance to read it. Uh, but I, I remedied that later. <laughs> I thought you were going to wait for the movie to come out. You know, you, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. How did you come to write this book? Because it's, it's a series, right? The very short introduction series. Yes, yes. I, in a local bookstore, a very famous local independent bookstore on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, I would go to from time to time. And um, I saw in front of the register, if you turned your back to the register, there was an array of very short introductions. And I thought, this is, this is wonderful. You know? and, I, and I bought a few of them. Some of them were disappointing. Some of them were astonishingly strong, like a very short introduction to Shakespeare. Really? You, you think you're going to try that one? <laughs> wow. It, it, terrific. Just a terrific book. And so I thought, well, I must have one on C.S. Lewis. In fact, they didn't have many introductions to individual people. They were mostly to, like short introductions to mathematics, for example, or to classical literature, but not individual people. So... I thought they needed one on Lewis, and I wrote to the editor of the series an email, heard nothing, heard nothing for a year, forgot about it. And then I got an email from her saying, you may remember you sent me this email. Are you still interested in writing a very short introduction to C.S. Lewis? So I waited the obligatory nanosecond <laughs> before I hit reply. And I said yes. And then it took off from there uh, with contracts and guidelines and proposals that were vetted by others whom I don't know and um, that sort of thing. And um, I wrote it rather quickly. I, I may have written it too quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I it, – it says what I wanted to say. And I'll tell you, if, if they didn't limit me to 35,000 words <laughs> – it would have been a disaster. It would have been a disaster. And I was reminded, you know, James, you do have to cover the books. <laughs> you know, so that's why there'll be summaries of books because you have to give, that's a requirement of the series, to give summaries of the books. But I worked in the poetry. I worked in Lewis's letters. Then you have information boxes. Then you have photos. Um, then you have secondary sources. Uh, a bibliography, Lewis and secondary sources, which did not count toward the 35,000 words. Ah. I, I remember that trick as a student. I was like, oh, the appendices <laughs> don't count. Mm. 
Well, here is the book of appendices yeah. I'm going to add to my project. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, the reviews have been very favorable on online on Amazon. They've been favorable in print and online. They've been favorable. One one guy gave it two stars because it didn't flow. Oh well, that's actually one thing that I would say is completely wrong because the the main thing that I liked about your book because. I will ask you in a moment, how do you even start trying to condense 40 books and a life like Lewis's into 35,000 words? But one of the things that I thought that could have been done in this book very badly was how you progress from topic to topic. Uh, I actually really liked the way you weaved everything in. So there was a growing narrative through it. Uh, and then you occasionally return to things when they needed a little bit more depth. Um, but yeah, in 35,000 words, going through 40 books, his life and just trying to make sense of some of the historical context and the things that he was responding to. I'll tell you what you just said. This, this was not a setup between you and me. Let, let your listeners know this. That is the thing I most like to hear about the book, that the texture was there, that the weaving was there, and it, and it flowed. Uh, one reviewer uh, said it was really full of two things, anecdotes and mistakes. And the reviewer identified she or he thought <laughs> were some mistakes, but they for example, for example, that a thousand points of light comes from the magician's nephew, George Bush's use of a thousand points of light in 1988. That was his theme. George Bush senior, a thousand points of light, which of course is right from the magician's nephew. The reviewer pointed out that um, the speechwriter has denied that. Now, the truth of the matter is I, go to, I happen to go to the same church as the speechwriter, and her co-writer was a classmate of mine in the late 60s at Queens College in the master's program. But not only that, one of the highlights of my life is sitting at home one day next to my telephone, unlisted number, getting a phone call from a man whose name I've forgotten, but I recognized it because I was a reader of National Review, and I knew it from his byline there and from the masthead and so on. And he said, I am so and so. I said, hello, how, how are you? I'm delighted to speak with you. How, how can I help you? He said, well, I want you to verify something for me, if you don't mind. I'm calling on behalf of Vice President Bush. Really? You know, okay. Yes, is a thousand points of light, is, does that ring a bell? I said, of course it does. It's from the magician's nephew. He says, do you have any other quotes you can give us? <laughs> so I said, well, I have, I have about 2,000 other quotes I and anybody else can give you. you know, but that's Pull down the, your copy of the quotable C.S. Lewis from the, from the shelf. I'm mailing you something. <laughs> right. Anything not eternal is eternally out of date. How's that? You know? okay. um, so he said, well, thanks very much. And the next thing I knew, it, it showed up in... Uh, George Bush's speeches and as a tagline and so on and so forth. Now, I was curious about this. Linda Bridges was a managing editor, became a managing editor of National Review. And she midwived the creation of the New York C.S. Lewis Society by talking Mr. Buckley into printing that first letter, inviting responses. I became friends with Linda. We went to baseball games together. She was a guest at our table and so on and so forth. I said, Linda, I got this call from so-and-so. She says, oh, yes. He asked me if I knew anybody who could verify a court. I hope you didn't mind that I gave him your, your home number, your listed number. I said, no. you know, I, she said, you know, he was calling from the White House. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. So anyway, um, you know, this, this reviewer pointed out a few errors, but this is not one of them. He's wrong. He's wrong about this, and I'm right. But, but, I did make a howler, and I'm grateful to this reviewer for pointing it out. When I, when I look at the last battle, I say it's Shiva the ape wearing the lion skin. And of course it isn't, it's Puzzle the donkey. Yeah, when I first read your book, it was actually in an audio book. So when I heard that, I was like, wait a minute. Went back up, I was like, ah, okay. He just misspoke, it's fine. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. Um, I take, I take sucre from the fact that Lewis, after his book, Preface to Paradise Lost, said a couple of people have pointed out a howler or two that I made. Said, okay, 
It's good enough for Jack. It's good enough for me. Yeah, we're all allowed a few. Yeah, we're all allowed a, a, a few. That's about it. But I decided to do the book chronologically. And um, so intertwine the books with his life. And uh, work in some anecdotes about his life, which I found not just interesting, but telling. Telling anecdotes. Like giving a man money when he was begging. And being criticized by Tolkien. And saying to Tolkien, you know, Tolkien said, he's just going to drink that up, Jack. And Jack's saying, well, Thomas, that's what I was going to do with it. What's the difference? You know, that's it, not only amusing, but it's in, it tells you something about Lewis. So that's what I hope the, um, the anecdotes did. But it's not, it's, it's, it's not all anecdotes and mistakes. Um, now, but actually on that anecdote, because I've heard different versions of that. I've heard most other people, when they're talking about it, they say that the other person is Tolkien. But on the Socrates in the City interview with Walter Hooper, he says that he was that other guy. But it's also quite possible he did this multiple times, who knows? Ah, well, uh, why not? Why not? I mean, who, we've all given money out here and there to people, you know, buying lunches and so on and so forth. Um, Hooper's one of the oldest and dearest friends I have, so I am not going to contradict Walter <laughs> Hooper on record. But the next time I call the man, <laughs> I find out what, what he has to say. But it's, it's, you see, it sounds like Tolkien. It sounds like Tolkien. Well, to be fair, you know, anyone hanging around the Inklings, they do have a similar kind of feel to them. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, write, writing the, uh, writing the uh, summaries was was. It wasn't easy, but it was fun. And I always had to remember, do not, I had to remind myself, do not forget the letters and the poetry. So I, I worked very hard picking parts of letters and poetry that would stitch things together and move it. Because oh, Lewis never forgot them. And that was one of the things that I did like about your book, because I got quite deep into Lewis before I realized, oh, he had a total different desire for his life and career. I mean, it's hinted at in various places, but then I discovered spiritual bondage and dimer and oh there was this other complete other side of him that i never even knew existed right and and they're revealing poems they're, they're very revealing like the, the apologist's evening prayer you know take from me all my trumpery lest i die um the ruins fall about his love for joy and so on and so forth um and then i make my own personal points um the, the, the big point for me being the heart of Lewis's apologetic project. Notice that the first book by Chad Walsh was not apostle to atheists. It was apostle to skeptics. And I know personally, on my own and by way of the society, how many people have been brought to Christ by C.S. Lewis. His influence is cultural. He's, he's now a cultural touchstone. This wasn't always the case. We had a member of the society, Jack Haynes, the late Jack Haynes, who conducted what he called a Lewis watch whenever Lewis was mentioned, you know, two or three times in the prayer. Now you, you couldn't do that now. You know, as I say in the book, I've heard that there are bobblehead dolls of C.S. Lewis. I mean, we're saturated by Lewis. So there's a cultural influence, but that's not where the importance of Lewis lies. It lies in each individual human heart that he has stabbed with this or that or these many works. And, and, this is why when, when people who don't know Lewis ask you about him, they, they think you've gone nuts. So as I said, it's like a polyphonic score that rises to mystical heights. And I've always thought that his, his style should be studied more. I mentioned Tandy's book before, but it should be studied more. And I point out an example of that style from, of all places, the allegory of love, I think, in my book, a whole paragraph in the allegory of love, which is, which is an essay. I mean, that's how he wrote paragraphs that were essays. But in his apologetics, he goes from the possible, you know, he'll say, well, this isn't impossible, therefore it's possible, to the plausible. He, he then takes the possible and makes it plausible and then makes it pleasurable. And then makes it promising. And finally, before you know it, your heart is filled with hope. But the, ah, so this, you know, what I've written about Narnia, I can say about Lewis, 
it prepares you for the Gospels. It really does prepare you for the Gospels. So, so this is what the Old Testament is trying to do. And this is what the New Testament is trying to do. You know, sneak past those watchful dragons. But having said that, I'll say one more thing and then I'll stop. For, for now, anyway. <laughs> um, he's an intellectual master. His arguments, his analogies, his intelligence are as sharp for anyone who lends themselves to it as the great knock was for C.S. Lewis, his intellectual master, who's an atheist, by the way, the great knock, William T. Kirkpatrick. And it's an advent reading Lewis is an intellectual adventure. Yes, it will become imaginative, and yes, it will become spiritual. But I can't get over the intellectual adventure that is C.S. Lewis. His ability to see through unexamined assumptions, to root them out, to refute them, to look at words and take them apart and show how they're being carelessly used. And he really said this, but he meant this. It's just an astonishing mind at work. Maybe that gets us to the screw tape letters. I don't know. <laughs> it's up to you. I think, I think it pretty much does. But actually, before we talk about the screw tape letters, let's talk about till we have faces a little bit more. Because as you mentioned, this is a book which often divides fans. Uh, but I've heard that you are one of its cheerleaders. I am. I am. I've written on it. Of course, your buddy Andrew and my buddy Andrew knows that book backwards and forwards. We were once together at a conference that I was speaking at, and uh, I was sitting next to Andrew. He's such a likable man. He's okay. Of course, till we have... He's okay. <laughs> okay. Till we have faces came up. Now, I know the book. I really do know the book backwards and forwards. I've read it so many times. And um, he, he claimed to know the book. So he said, oh, let me give you a test, Andrew. The first hint of joy comes when Oral is traveling to the valley, but is at the peak of the mountain. He says, oh, yes, page 96. And I says, okay, I'm out of my league with this guy when it comes to TV. It's, it's a quick way to shut this down. <laughs> it's like you're, 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 you're trying to have a till we have faces off with me? Yes. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. 96. Next. <laughs> well, I... I I tell you what I love about the book. I want something else that's overlooked in Lewis. He didn't like rhetoric. He didn't like what it does. He spoke against rhetoric. He didn't like Renaissance rhetoric at all. He didn't like figures of speech at all. But what a master he was. Because he realized the power of rhetoric. And this book is as much about rhetoric as it is anything else. Remember, it's a letter by the queen defending herself. In ancient Greek terms, it is an apologia, and it follows that form. It's an accusation against the gods. And of course, along the way, she learns a couple of things at the end of part one, and especially in part two, when she goes out on this little trip of hers. And she, this, Lewis tells the story three or four times, and every time he tells it, it differs from the one she's telling about herself. How much she gets wrong, because she's convinced herself of certain things, because she's written them down. And she learns about the fox, and how the fox was all reason, but would cry at the most sentimental poem, you know. And um, by the way, the fox's real name, fox being the Greek servant that they had captured in battle, his real name is Lysias, which is more than a small hint because Lysias was a very famous Greek orator, one of the sophists, who gave a wonderful speech against the 30 tyrants. So it's not by, you know, this is C.S. Lewis. It's not by accident that he would name this man Lysias. And then we have the very end of the book, the very end of the book, which is so typical of Lewis. I'll tell you the end of the book. You may know it yourself very well. Please don't say it yet, if you do. But do you remember... In um, the silver chair, when they're in the underworld, and the witch is weaving her spell. Yes. And it, the spell is broken because Puddleglum steps on the fire. Mm -hmm. Ends all talk. Ends all talk. The spell is broken. Do you remember in Paralandra when Ransom is losing the debate with the young man? Enough of talk. Wham! A straight right hand lead to the chops. That's it <laughs> for the young man. Lewis, Lord of the Narrow Gate and Needle's Eye, take from me all my trumpery lest I die. 
always words, language, proof, rhetoric can be a danger. And at the end, until we have faces, just before Oral dies, and it's a good thing she does die because she'd still be going on if, if Lewis didn't kill her off. Words, words, nothing more than words let out to do battle against other words. And that's important to keep in mind for this master of words, C.S. Lewis, because he knew their limitations. He knew their limitations. So there you have till we have faces. I yeah, we have an entire season. <laughs> and even that belly scratched the surface. Well, in that case, then let's move on to the book we're going to be discussing this season, which is The Screwtape Letters. And I'm going to be asking this to any guests that we have on. What advice do you have for people reading this book? Um, be careful, because you will find yourself in this book. <laughs> oh, yes. I am the person that Screwtape is talking about when he tell, talks about men uh, perceiving inconvenience as injury. When I think that I have time to myself and it gets taken from me, and he's just utterly irate. Right. <laughs> oh, it also happens in The Great Divorce. I, I read The Great Divorce, as I said very early on. I've read it many times since. And I've gone through about six different <laughs> characters that are in The Great Divorce. Um, so be careful. You'll find yourself. Be patient. You have to remember something about this book. And... I, I think it's, you know, how we read is important. These were letters published on a weekly basis. So people did not read 31 letters consecutively. They did not read even two letters consecutively. They read one letter at a time and then had a week before the second. So I would say to readers, if, if you're having trouble with the book, take your time. Read a letter and think about it. Read one letter, let it go, go to the second letter, because that's how Lewis wrote them. And that's how people originally... And that's how we're going to be doing it on the podcast. We're going to be doing one letter each week. Oh, well, then that's, that's wonderful. Well, it was the lesson that we learnt in Till We Have Faces. Read Lewis's stuff slowly. <laughs> when, you, when you try zipping through yes. it, that's, that's, that's when you get the whiplash. And the thing about Till We Have Faces is it's so ostensibly simple. You know, the language is simple. The rhythm is quick. It's so easy just to race along until you realise... I really haven't understood the last three pages. <laughs> I, I better get back to it. Um, two things about the screw tape letters that I, that I always found interesting. I've looked over the manuscript of the screw tape letters very carefully. I did this about 30, no, I'm, oh, now it's 40 something years ago. So is this the handwritten one or the printed one? The handwritten one. Okay, so the one that the New York Library got. Yes. yes. Okay. And there were some corrections. Astonishingly few, astonishingly few career. There were some coffee or tea stains, maybe, you know, but that would never stop Lewis. One correction is very interesting, I think, because he said every man has a vision of two women, the celestial and the infernal. Now, I thought about that, and um, he crossed out celestial, and he replaced it with terrestrial terrestrial and the infernal, by which I think take it he means the temptress, you know, the seductress, and so on and so forth. I have a theory. I think he took out celestial because he didn't want any accidental associations with the Virgin Mary. You know, for us, the Queen of Heaven, right? So he changed it for that reason. Another one, which I report in the book, had to do with Lewis's inability to spell and that made me so happy. I'm dyslexic and my spelling is terrible. It's oh. like, I have a friend. You, you remember the example then? Not offhand. He, 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 he's making a point about feelings and how we must not pay attention to our own feelings. Like when you're at worship, don't think how devoted you are. Oh, um, oh, I don't feel devoted. Instead, pay attention to the object of the devotion and the feelings will be summoned. So Screwtape tells Wormwood in the book, in the printed version, have your patient fix his attention on his own feelings. And I thought, as a rhetorical scholar, what a perfect word fix is. Three letters, one syllable, Anglo-Saxon, but you can't get this wrong. Fix. There's Jack the genius at work. Then I looked at the manuscript. Right? 
He said, have your patient rivet his attention upon his feelings. But he misspells rivet, and he knows it. So he crosses it out, respells it wrong again, crosses that out, spells it right, crosses that out because by now his confidence is so sharp that in large, bold caps, he puts in fix with an exclamation point. (laughs) And I thought, well, there goes Jack, the rhetorical genius, is really Jack can't spell rivet the right way. Um, So those are the things I would say about screw tape. Read them one at a time. Read them slowly. Um, you, you, You might remember the setting. It's wartime. I mean, that's, you know, people rush into the book not reeling. The bombs are falling at the time, um, mores were very different then than they are now. So you have to have some bit of historical imagination to get to it. And, um, and enjoy, enjoy the ending, especially enjoy the ending. I'm really looking forward to getting to the ending, but the thing is it's going to be June or July next year, but I'm, I'm still looking forward to it nonetheless. <laughs> well, patience. I hear it's a virtue. One, yeah, yeah I, I, me too. Um, a point from Screwtape. The law of undulation. You're up. You think, oh, this is the world. I'm, you know, a new convert. Wow, oh, this is glorious. Two weeks later, what happened? <laughs> I'm at the depths. So this is the world. And what, what Screwtape tells Wormwood is, don't let them know the law of undulation. There'll be ups and downs. Let them think that all ups are up forever, or all downs are downs forever. But if they understand that they're going to undulate, you'll blow our cover. That's one of my, fa- the other favorite is, we can't invent a new pleasure. All of our research, no matter what we do, we can't invent a new pleasure. You know? don't, don't they know that he's a hedonist? <laughs> you know, he's invented all the pleasures. We can, we can only twist, which is beautifully Augustinian. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. So that, that I mean, you have a good, good year to look forward to. We do indeed. I have um, at hand some scriptural quotes that I'd like to share with you, because people often ask, bring Lewis back to scripture. And, um, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where, Paul mentions the phrase weight of glory. So that has some historical importance because that Lewis took it from him. But I would say Romans 15, 13 epitomizes Lewis. May the God of hope bring you such joy and peace in your faith that the power of the Holy Spirit will remove all bounds to hope. And it's as though Lewis said, okay, I'll do my best. And then there's Hebrews 6, 19 to 20. I will shower blessings upon you. We now have found safety, encouragement to take a firm grip on the hope that is held out to us. Here we have an anchor for our soul, as sure as it is firm and reaching right through beyond the veil where Jesus entered before us and on our behalf. And once again, that, well, that's what Lewis accomplishes. Now, for me, that's what he accomplishes. I think there are millions and millions just like me. <laughs> He accomplishes that. I think so too. I think quite a lot of them have just been listening to this interview. (laughs) Professor Como, thank you very much for your time today. And just to wrap up, can you tell people where they can find out more about you and purchase your books? Oh, well, they can go to www.jamescomo.com. No spaces, no caps. And um, they can purchase my book wherever VSIs, very short introductions, are sold or online at Barnes and Nobles or Amazon or from, from the OUP, the Oxford University Press. I guess Amazon is the standard place that people go to. It's also in Kindle and it's also an Audible book. I, you, you had the... That was, that was how I got to it after I gave my copy away. I had a plane ride back. It's like, well, I need to read something. <laughs> well, you know, there's one chap who reviewed it on Amazon who said, I, I heard the book on Audibly. And um, it was just too slow. And there's a speed control, dude. <laughs> <laughs> what is the speed control? <laughs> I said, you know, 
don't blame that on me. <laughs> you know, I moved rather quickly. You know. The the only complaint I had was he said uh, Maudlin as Magdalene. I did hear really. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's unconscionable. <laughs> <laughs> that's as bad as Shift the Eight wearing lion skin. Wow. Like no, 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 no. Grace, we're all out of you. Okay. <laughs> well, there was a review. I think I mentioned this in the book. Somebody reviewed uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe once on Amazon. And he said, I looked very much forward to reading this book. How disappointed I was to find that Turkish delight was so prominent. The whole book turned into an advertisement for Cadbury Candy Company. <laughs> okay, I, you know, I don't know. My wife, by the way, won't listen to the article. When I told her it was going to be an audible book, which is no small, you know, I'm told that's no small thing, mm-hmm. that it's an audible book. She said, she said, well, can they get Richard Burton to do it? <laughs> and I said, you know that Richard Burton has been dead for 15 years. So probably not. And she said, it doesn't matter. It's the Oxford University Press. <laughs> <laughs> so... Failing that, you know, there was no plan B for, as far as my wife was concerned. Um, well, I, I very much enjoyed this. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for listening to me. If they've hung in there, and I hope they enjoy the book. I hope it's helpful. In classrooms especially, I, I hear that it's being ordered by teachers and professors for their seminars and the like. Ah, wonderful. So now we truly know the answer of what are they teaching them in these schools? <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> Listeners, please be sure to check out all of our social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have a Patreon account at patreon.com slash pintswithjack. If you haven't written us an iTunes review, uh, if you're loving it so far, write that review now. If you're not so sure, give us a few more episodes. And when your opinion is better, then please feel free to write it. And you can always pick up merchandise at our website, pintswithjack.com. We have t-shirts, glasses, and some other things in the works. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.